0: Hey, hey, beer
1: fans! Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, now available at all your finest retailers. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy
0: who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out in a very curmudgeonly
1: way. <laughs> I don't think you could do it any other way, buddy. <laughs> yeah So on today's episode, of course, we will be getting your feedback in We actually have a correctional department of corrections correction that uh, may need to be corrected And then, of course, we'll go to the public cover the beer news We'll t- talk about some of the things we've been reading, some of the things we've been brewing Get into your questions, give you a tip, and get you on your way It's just that easy Before
0: we do any of that, though, please take a listen to the messages from the people who make this show possible This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, publishers of Zymergy Magazine, organizers of HomebrewCon, and enjoyers of homebrew. Join your friends in fermentation at
1: homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners. Go to ExperimentalBrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support.
0: Welcome back. And as usual, we're going to kick the show off with a few
1: announcements. Drew, take it. Yeah, if you didn't notice in your feed in the last week, well, wait, no, when are we doing this? Okay. All right. So if you didn't notice in your feed, you had a new episode of the Brew Files, a brew file all about, well, one of my favorite things and something I can't believe that we hadn't talked about yet, Saison. That's right. It's got a Saison show. So go back, look in your podcast app, scroll back, and you can find me talking about Saison. So go listen. Geez, imagine you talking about Cezanne
0: is almost as weird as me being a curmudgeon, huh? Yeah, I'm just surprised (laughs) it
1: took nearly 100 episodes of the show to get me to talk to someone.
0: (laughs) Yeah, really, man. Hey, and we want to let you know that we are going to be doing a Brew Your Own Boot Camp this year. It's online. It takes place April 9th. We'll put the link up on the website so you can go there to sign up if you want. We're going to be talking about homebrew experiments and why they're good and what they're good for. So uh, we hope you guys will join us on April 9th for four hours of online weirdness we'll be there hopefully you will be too
1: amen buddy and then don't forget you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on apple podcast you can click the aha amazon brewers friends or byo links on the website and by going to patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause which for this part of the year still is it is world central
0: kitchen they're a killer organization started by chef Jose Andres and his wife Patricia. And what they aim to do is help get people fed by employing local restaurants and food service workers in your area, right? So you give us money, we give them money, they give the money to somebody local in an area where food needs to be distributed. Uh, Great, great organization. They're doing wonderful work, uh, disasters. They were taking uh, pizzas to all the National Guard guys at the Capitol. Uh, Wonderful thing. And it's so important that we are also running this for another six months. So we're going for a full year on this instead of the six months that we would normally do. And not only that, but we're going to match whatever you guys contribute because we want to give them a big big boost. So please hurt us. Send in a lot of money that we have to match and we will pass it along to World Central Kitchen and we can uh, all feel good about helping do something good in the world.
1: And also that man makes amazing food.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've never had his food, but he uh, he's a pretty cool guy.
1: Oh yeah, he is. But of course, enough about that. Now It's time for your feedback. feedback. And we have one really big piece of feedback uh, today. And this one comes in from John Horn. Uh, John says, my brew year's resolution this year is to brew more. And don't forget, folks, we can always use your brew year's resolutions. What are you going to do this year? As incentive, I have limited myself from purchasing any beer for myself. Yikes. Notice the caveat. I can buy beer for friends, and technically my wife can buy me beer, too. (laughs) (laughs) Clever, clever. But I can't ask her for it. So far, so good. John, are you a lawyer? Uh, (laughs) Hoping people don't hate me for not supporting the brewing industry. If I feel too guilty, I'll buy some gift cards for next year. The second thing, I'm reading a paper on the effectiveness of sensory training. The paper is called The Influence of Training and Expertise on the Multisensory Perceptions of Beer, A Review. Yeah, that's an academic paper for you. Title's probably almost as long as the paper. (laughs) Yeah, really. I'm only halfway through the paper, but the research in this area so far indicates that trained-slash-expert tasters are somewhat better at identifying flavors and off-flavors that they are familiar with, but they aren't really much better at flavor perception when it comes to beer outside their wheelhouse. People that are BJCP judges or Cicerones or are interested in being either really ought to read this review. It is humbling... And a great reminder that we love to talk about things we don't necessarily know. Oh, man, just go to Facebook. You can see that proven hundreds of times a day. And then uh, John also kicks in uh, a final bit. Finally, something other. I just listened to this podcast about our sense of smell. It's called The Sunday Read, The Forgotten Sense, produced by The New York Times. Warning, it has a lot to do with the C word, but it isn't the usual obnoxious or tiresome stuff we've been hearing about for almost a year. It's absolutely fascinating and also more than a tad frightening. Yeah, I'm I'm not super thrilled about the whole idea of an, anosmia as a possible symptom. So no, but now Denny, you had some thoughts about what John wrote in about.
0: Well, yeah, I mean uh, his. Uh, let me see here. I guess his second point about the trained tasters uh, is exactly what we talk about in one of our seminars. Uh, there's a, an example that uh, as an article, God, I think. I think it's from like the Journal of Beer and Brewing, although, or Journal of the Institute of Brewing. Can't remember exactly, but it was uh, an experiment done by Charlie Bamforth and another guy named Smythe. And they got uh, three groups of tasters together, one uh, highly trained, one moderately trained, and uh, one totally untrained. And they gave them, uh, two beers in in two sets. They did this twice, and they said, uh, okay, this beer is made uh, normally, and the other beer is made with uh, ingredients or a, a special process so that the whole beer is, like, done in three days or something. The other set of beers, they said, okay, this one is made with all uh, traditional ingredients. Uh, this other one is made with, like, a heavy dose of sugar or adjuncts or something, and of course all four of the beers were the same thing the the really interesting part was that the untrained and moderately trained tasters were oftentimes more accurate than the highly trained tasters right the highly trained tasters when you know when they were given the two beers one normal process one a speeded up process Almost all preferred the normal processed beer, in spite of the fact that they were exactly the same. Same thing with the ingredients. The highly trained tasters almost all said that they preferred the beer with all traditional ingredients and no sugar or adjunct or whatever it was. And this was a case of their training leading their perceptions, right? So that's why when when we do a at, at tasting, we don't tell anybody anything. We just say, is one of these beers different? But it's exactly the point here that John was making, that the more you know, maybe the worse off you are.
1: Well, and I will also say that a lot of times when I talk to people about tasting – the real difference between somebody who's an experienced taster versus a non-experienced taster is just the access to the vocabulary. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, and making those associations, but yeah, to your point, sometimes those associations come with preconceived notions. So <laughs> Yeah. There's baggage there, buddy. hmm. All that training. Uh, we will, uh, we will include a link to the paper that John is talking about in here about, the, about all this, this training. We'll also include a link to the podcast so that you can, uh, Go terrify yourself as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. And maybe we'll uh, see if we can toss up uh, those examples that I was just talking about also. So Before we leave feedback, I know last episode I told you guys I'd gotten a tilt, and I wanted your feedback. I have gotten a ton of tilt feedback, and I am still working my way through it. So thank you. If you have any other uh, tips or suggestions about using a tilt, please let me know. And now... It's time for Drew's mea culpa and defense. Oh, no, this is not going to be a mea culpa. No. <laughs> I should have known. Yeah. But that, of course, means that we are going into the correctional department of corrections uh, for a correction that I don't think actually needs correction. Uh, <laughs> this happened after the last episode. I was talking about Plenty of the Elder and Plenty of the Younger, and a couple of people had made mention in various forums and to our email boxes. Uh, why is Drew saying Plenty? Isn't the beer Pliny? Well, here's a story. At least according to the way I was trained in Latin classics, the dude's names were Pliny the Elder and Pliny the Younger. Vinny screwed up when he started calling the beer Pliny. I've had this conversation with Vinny. It would make more sense for him to name the beer in such a way that it rhymes with himself, but he didn't know any better at the time. And by the time he had actually learned that the guy's names were actually Pliny, uh, the name had stuck as Pliny. Now, you all are free to call it pliny. I as, as is Vinny, right? As is Vinny. I, on the other hand, will continue to call it plenty. And nobody you. will know what you're talking about. Oh beer people will know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, because they've heard you complain about this before, right? Oh man, are you coming the amount of times I've spent complaining about this, I could probably go buy myself a cup of coffee with it. <laughs> Yeah, right, as long as it was a $400 cup of coffee. Okay,
0: it's time for us to get out of here and move on over to the pub. So stick around, and we're going to be right back talking about the beer life. From the Malt Innovation Center, Great Western Malting has released two new products. The first is Biscuit Rye, perfect for your next brewing or distilling experiment. It strikes a pleasant balance between toasted, biscuit-forward flavors and classic Rye Spice. The second is Light Munich, a long-requested iteration of their popular traditional Munich, which brings some sweet malty complexity and a hint of copper color to your next recipe. Look for it at your local homebrew store and request it if they haven't stocked up yet. We'll be right back. The cat sat on the opportunities during our favorite winter months whether you're looking to hone your brewing skills try new brewing techniques or simply find the right après ski beer the Yeast Quarter 1 2021 private collection features european lager strains ideal for different skills styles and occasions for light bodied lagers and pilsners you'll enjoy working with the 2001 pilsner urkel h strain and 2042 danish lager beers crafted from these strains pair well with lighter food and are refreshing after a long day of skiing. For brewers looking to craft beers that fill the belly and warm the heart, reach for 2352 Munich Lager. This strain can produce medium-bodied lagers for pairing with hearty meals and seasonal spices. Say farewell to 2020 and hello to 2021 with the feel and flavors of the Winter Lager Beer Private Collection. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at whyeastlab.com. welcome back everybody glad you stuck around if you do business with any of our sponsors please let them know that you heard about them here on the experimental brewing podcast so we're sitting here in the experimental brewing virtual pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere somewhere in cyberspace and we are having a couple beers and uh drew sounds like he's having one that's right up my alley
1: <laughs> oh man this is this is a walloper i Actually, was got lucky, and I got my hands on a couple cans Kansas the other day for the uh, Falcons meeting. And if you haven't realized, there's kind of a tradition now where January and February are triple IPA month. Uh, and I'll get into that in an episode of the Brew Files very shortly. So the beer I'm having is El Segundo Brewing Company, and I've had them on the show here before. I really like their beer here in L.A. They're one of the best people doing hoppy beers. Uh, they have a triple IPA that they call Power Plant. And the way they market it, I think it's like 11.5%. They market it as a triple IPA with an irresponsible amount of hops. And all I can tell you about this is it is bracing. It is bitter. Um, Like a lot of triple IPAs, the aroma is actually surprisingly subdued until you let it sit and open up a little bit and warm up a little bit. But once you do, you kind of get just this rich citrus filled nose with just a little bit of pine a little bit of dank no tropical uh and then the beer itself has a slightly sweet start to it and and when i say slightly sweet i mean slightly sweet and then that hot bitterness kicks in and wallops you right through to the to the final power and so it is definitely a beer that is worthwhile checking out and if you're in the la area You can find it at your better beer shops and you don't have to stand online or, you know, stand at a bar waiting to find it. And how about you, sir? I'm having one of my home brews because I've mentioned
0: before, I don't get out and buy beer a lot anymore. And I'm not in a place where I can get it delivered. But, uh, you know, this is the time of year when I really enjoy my alt beer, Milo's Alt. It's kind of uh, an Americanized version of an alt. uh, About... 75% 75% Munich, 25% pills, uh, first word hopped with some uh, Spalt Select, a little bit more at 60 minutes, a little bit more at 5 minutes, fermented with y East, 1007 at 52, 55 degrees for a few weeks. And man, this is my idea of my perfect homebrew uh this one came out really well beautiful color crystal clear nice multi-flavor but with enough bitterness and hop flavor I, I hop it to like around 45 ibus or so so that it, it doesn't come across as sweet or cloying in any way and you know the keg is down to probably the last quarter now and i'm very sad but it's a it's a delicious beer i've talked about it before i think we might even have the recipe on the website Mm -hmm. but uh, i I definitely encourage you to try making an alt beer if you haven't before it's a in a way kind of a a german amber ale we did a we did a brew files on
1: alt didn't we yes we did yeah and i I think that's when i think that's when you talk about miles um, miles alt.
0: Uh, yeah right and you know it's like I said, it's kind of an Americanized version, but for my taste, it's a great beer. So that's what I'm having today.
1: Sounds good to me. All right, let's get into the news because we got a couple of things to cover. Uh, the first one is we're down a Trappist. Good Lord, yeah. somebody call the Vatican.
0: <laughs> yep. You know, there were, uh, there were six Trappist uh, breweries uh, in Belgium, and we're now down to five. Ochel is gone. Uh, they have no monks left, and to be certified by, what is it, the International Trappist Association, ITA? Yep, the ITA. Yeah, something like that. You have to have an actual monk involved in overseeing the beer. They don't necessarily have to be brewing it, but they have to be involved in overseeing it. Now, as it turns out, Ochel beer has been brewed at West Mall for a really long time. And it's going to be continue to be brewed at West Mall with no changes or anything. They just won't be able to call it a Trappist beer and uh, put that little symbol on the bottles. But, you know, don't lament that Ochil is gone because it's not. But at the same time, it's kind of sad that there's no monks there anymore.
1: Well, and this is actually a huge ongoing problem for the monastic community because... Huge surprise, the monastic lifestyle is not exactly very popular these days. And, I mean, when I went to Belgium the last time and I toured a a couple of monasteries, the average age of the brothers in each of these monasteries was like 72 to 76. So this is going to be a big problem going forward. Um, And, of course, at all these uh, Trappist breweries, or I should say not all, but there's, what, 13, 14 in the world? Yeah. At almost, at almost all of them, I'm I'm guessing because I know it is true for the Belgian ones that the brewing itself has been done by lay workers who are being supervised by the monks. And yeah, I I don't know about West Vlederen for sure, but I wouldn't
0: doubt that that's what it was.
1: No, I, I, I'm I'm fairly certain West Vlederen has lay workers in the in the brewery. So, um. But yeah, this is going to be this is going to be a problem. But at the same time, remember, until what like a decade ago, there were still only really six Trappist breweries. So, yes, we've lost Ockle, but now we have thirteen others, including one here in the U.S. Yeah, which is pretty darn cool.
0: Maybe someday I can get a hold of some of their beer and check it
1: out. It's pretty good. I've had it, and although it is sort of strange, uh, they have a Trappist IPA. <laughs> well, you know that's that's
0: not really all that surprising. Well, given given
1: how people usually talk about trapeziers.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. But uh, you know,
1: things are changing a lot in Belgium these days. There you go. All right, and then from the monks to people who probably should act more like monks. Uh, <laughs> while we've been away doing other stuff, things kind of went down at Boulevard. So I don't know if you all have been following this, but basically Boulevard Brewing Company in Kansas City, big brewery uh, owned by Duval Morgot, who's usually pretty hands-off. And in this particular case, seems like maybe a little too hands-off. They had an ex-employee. She went on to Reddit to complain at one point about uh, sexual harassment that she'd experienced at the brewery, including also her times to try and take it through HR the retaliation that happened and eventually with her leaving the brewery itself if you go and you read her story it's pretty awful i mean there's just you would be hard-pressed to understand why anybody would treat anybody else that way and so that sort of hit the the airwaves right or the online airwaves i should say and that kicked off a whole thing where suddenly a bunch of former employees of Boulevard came forth and mentioned either they had been harassed or they had been witnessing uh, they had witnessed harassment and within a week the brewery had gone from issuing a very sort of crappy carefully worded non-apology saying oh we had investigated these allegations and we didn't find anything it was very very tone deaf because it was pretty much like, oh, no, we investigate ourselves, and there's nothing wrong here. We are good. Um, and when that started to get sort of buried under the tsunami of other complaints coming forward, the person who had been in charge of the brewery stepped down. Their marketing director stepped down. A couple of other people were sort of shoved out the door. And the founder of Boulevard has actually stepped back in as the CEO and, you know, said, okay, well, you know, we're going to fix this. And so John McDonald came back to the brewery. And by all accounts, John McDonald's actually a pretty good dude. And he he came in and said, we've made mistakes and we're going to fix them. So it's been interesting because the initial reaction, once people started to go, oh, wait, there is a thing here, had a lot of people going, Oh, well, I guess that's no more Boulevard beer for me. What do you think, Dan?
0: You know, I I don't know what to think to tell you the truth, you know. I guess actions speak louder than words, so we'll have to see where they go from here. Like you, I'm just kind of speechless uh, over some of the allegations that were made, uh, which I assume are are likely true. Uh, you know, uh, you know I, I, I'm glad that the people who were... Uh, the the behind those allegations in terms of of doing the things are are gone uh, but the the proof is in the pudding man let's see where
1: they go from now. yeah so that is an interesting story. By the way, if you look and you read the not just the news stories about this that will give you what's specifically happened at Boulevard, but if you go and you look at beer Twitter or beer Facebook and you read the discussions happening around this, This is not isolated to just Boulevard, right? This is the case that everybody's talking about. And it is sort of endemic in craft beer. Boys and girls, treat each other like actual human beings, please. (laughs) Yeah, it shouldn't need to be said. But there's uh, so much in our lives
0: these days where uh, people don't do what they should do. So just be nice to everybody and... Like like you said, this is happening in way too many breweries, I mean, I'm sure in other aspects of life also, but there's no excuse for it, so yeah.
1: do what you know you should do. Yeah, and by the way, if somebody's being crappy to you, then you can be unkind. Yeah, golden <laughs> rule, golden rule. Yeah, all right, um, so from that, let's talk to the other thing that actually had people up in arms, which... In comparison, is very silly. <laughs> it certainly is.
0: So, uh, Anch- Anchor Brewing has changed their iconic label in and, and cans uh, to a, a totally new design: yellow and blue. Uh, you know, no nice, crafty, artsy-looking label anymore. You know, some people like it, some people don't. Some people are like me. It's like. I really don't care. I mean, change the label. Big deal. It I really doesn't affect me one way or the other as long as the beard doesn't change. Uh, I might have preferences for one label over another, but I'm not getting
1: upset about it like a lot of people were. Yeah. And so if you hadn't seen the design, basically, Anchor, which of course is now owned by, was it, uh, Kieran or they Sapporo? I can't remember. It's either Karen or Sapporo. Uh, they, They changed the the label to be, or the the design of the cans to be very much like, and the bottles, and the six-pack holders, to be sort of this bright yellow, stands out very much on the shelf, bright blue anchor, very iconic-looking anchor, but it's not the the cool, old-fashioned, hand-drawn label. It's a very simple design, and it's all supposed to be about eye-catching. Now, I get why people are are upset when things like that change, particularly something that, that is that iconic. I think those labels are, like what that general style pattern is, something like 50 years old. Yeah. Um, I get it, but at the same time, this is what breweries do. Um, and to Denny's point, as long as the uh, the liquid on the inside hasn't changed, I don't care what the label says.
0: Yeah, it's like, you know, I, I, may, I may say, I like this label better than that one, but I'm not going to get totally freaked out like a lot of people were and say, oh, it's such a travesty, they changed their label.
1: Uh, And by the way, it is Sapporo. Okay, there we go, Sapporo. Um, And, yeah, I saw some people interviewing, uh, uh, what's his name, Uh, uh, Jim Stitt, who is the guy who has drawn, like, all the Anchor Christmas logos, uh, or almost all of the Anchor Christmas labels. I think he missed one. And he's like, hmm, it's not my choice of design, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, really. I mean, if he doesn't care, why should you? There you go. All right. And final story for the day of the pub, talking a little bit about the other kerfluffle that happened, and again, just as silly as anything that isn't the Boulevard case, and that was the Rush in the River of the Plenty, the Younger uh, sale. Now, remember what I said, February, uh, January and February are kind of triple IPA months, and at least here on the West Coast, that's very much due to uh, the Bistro in Hayward, California, uh, and their double slash triple IPA festival. And so people started making triple IPAs to be fresh for the time of the competition at Hayward. So now it's just become a tradition. So because of COVID, no Plenty of the Younger going out to various bars, no standing in line or buying tickets to be able to buy a taste or a pint of Plenty of the Younger. And so Russian River pivoted, and their pivot was to go to online sales only. They produced four batches of Plenty of the Younger, and they bottled that. And they announced everybody they were going to do online sales, again, California sales only, and the cases that they were going to sell were going to be a mixed pack, four bottles of Plenty of the Younger, and then two bottles each of Plenty of the Elder, Happy Hops, the STS Pills, and a brand new sour cherry beer from their their fooders that they had never bottled. And so that went on sale and the day it went on sale, they said, Oh, it's eleven o'clock PM or 11 o'clock a.m. Pacific Time at blank, blank date. When they opened up the gate, apparently they had 110,000 people waiting to go through the Shopify system that they use. And a lot of people, the vast majority of people, didn't get a chance to buy it because they got it into their carts, and then by the time they reached the checkout screens, the inventory was already sold. And keep in mind, they sold 6,000 cases in, like, a minute. Now... That's pretty impressive. It's also kind of impressive that the site didn't just fall over. But a lot of people were angry. A lot of people were dragging the brewery for, you know, either not having enough beer, allowing them to get into the checkout phase, and, you know, sort of acting like a tease. Or the other one I saw that was also funny, given how much support Vinny and Natalie have shown for their local community, uh, people complaining and dragging them for not supporting their locals, and I guess I'm not going to have Russian River beer anymore. People plenty of the younger is a really nice beer it is still a beer (laughs) right on so i get people being annoyed i get people being upset at least temporarily but you need to check your priorities if this is how you're going to react
0: yeah i mean that's the thing that i keep getting
1: Back to man, it's
0: only freaking beer. Come on, your life is not going to end if you can't get it. Your life is not going to end if you were inconvenienced a bit because
1: you were trying to get it. Chill out, just chill out, people. Yeah, and if you want to be able to make your own Plenty of the Younger esque beer, then I suggest that you go back and you find the episode of the Brew Falls. I think it was episode 50. That I did with Craig Chaplin, where he's talked about the journey he's taken to make a plenty of the younger style beer. And then, of course, I would also suggest you listen to the upcoming episode of The Brew Files. That's going to be about making triple IPA from the point of view of multiple people. So that way, you can go and make your own five gallons, and you don't even have to wait online. Yeah, really, man. You don't have to get upset with anybody
0: but yourself if you don't have enough.
1: (laughs) All right. That's enough of that. Let's go read something.
0: All right. We're going to be heading over to the library, and uh, we're going to be talking about stuff that we've been reading. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family owned business of husband and wife veterans. So when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon High Desert Farm. Their eighth-generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit Mechagrade.com.
1: Well, if the chair is squeaking and somebody's shushing me and there's snow <laughs> of old paper in the air, it's got to be the library. And now it's the time for us when we want to talk about things we've been reading that are beer related and not news. And so the first article that we're going to talk about here is actually about homebrewing traditions that aren't European in nature. And actually, one of the things I'd wanted to do this year was study a little bit more about other indigenous brewing processes around the world, right? You know, what is, you know, what is a African sort of beer look like? You know, what is, what did beer brewing in South America look like? Obviously a lot of this has been changed by, you know, the, the rise of lager beer and professional breweries everywhere. And that's actually one of the things that is, you know, that I was reading about here, which is a story out of uh, Johannesburg, South Africa, uh, talking about how traditional South African beer that's been brewed for the longest time by people such as the Cosa tribe um, is in danger of disappearing. And so Slow Food International, which if you don't remember, it was a big thing. At least we were talking about it in American homebrewing a while ago. It's it's a group that's oriented around the idea of preserving older food traditions so that they don't disappear. So Slow Food International is working with a number of members of the Cosa people to actually, try and preserve this tradition because it's a, it's a corn made beer and with sorghum, yeast and water. It's often done, you know, basically right in the same pot and made by these women who are serving it out of like these traditional little pubs that they're running. And the problem is the women who are doing it, they're finding that their business is going down because the one woman who's quoted in the article says, this is the worst year of business ever for me. The young men do not drink traditional beer anymore. They want the fancy beer in bottles. Uh, There's no money anymore in this beer. And so it's interesting. They're talking about how it's a dying art, and now they're really trying to preserve it. So to me, this falls in line with some of the stuff I was interested with this year anyway. But it is fairly cool. And I do think, uh, particularly in our tradition and the way that we look at beer making, that we're missing out on a lot of things that have been done by other cultures as well. So I encourage people to go out there, read this article. And then go try and figure out, you know, like, okay, hey, where are some of these techniques? Because you never know. You can find stuff in there that can influence what you do as a brewer as well. That was like heavy, man. Hey. And why not? (laughs)
0: and the other thing that uh, we ran across was an article about uh, how hops can help with cognitive decline Uh, things like the alpha acids and matured hop bitter acids as they're called activate the vagus nerve and improve memory impairment Uh, now maybe my memory is too impaired but uh I don't want to improve memory impairment. I want to improve memory
1: retention. But well, I think it's improve the improve the condition that's causing memory impairment. Yeah,
0: right. I I know what they mean. It just was
1: worded kind of strangely. But
0: what I want to know is, with the number of IPAs I drink, why isn't this working? <laughs>
1: maybe you know maybe it is actually working and if you hadn't been drinking all these IPAs <laughs> it would be, you'd even, be worse. even worse <laughs> but it, well, it it is very interesting because this points to some of the stuff that people have talked about in the past that I mean yeah sure we use hops for making beer with but hops have been used medicinally for a long long time they're one of these plants that have a number of actual interesting benefits so uh, yeah, have a, have another IPA, maybe make yourself some hop tea, add some <laughs> sweetener to it. Uh, and they are actually talking about, they are, there are supplements that, that they are making that have these matured hop, bitter acids in them so that, you know, maybe you can get your benefits without necessarily having the beer. But why would you do that? As we've mentioned a number of times, beer isn't really a
0: health food, you know, it's, it's delicious. It's fun. Uh,
1: drink reasonably most of the time well while beer is not a health food it is certainly enjoyable and at least now we know that there are some additional benefits to hops how's that hey man works for me all right i think it's time to actually
0: go make a beer we're gonna head over to the brewery and talk about what we've been brewing and what we might brew and what we wish we could brew so stick around we're gonna be right back When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Hey, welcome to the brewery. We are here sitting amongst the stainless steel and burners and pieces of equipment that we no longer use. And uh, we're going to be talking about what we've been doing. So, Drew, how about you? You've been brewing?
1: I have. And in fact, I just made an IPA that I'm going to use as a starter for what seems to almost be the theme of this episode, a triple IPA. <laughs> <laughs> and <I> just want to... <laughs> This one I decided to do with uh, some of the root shoot malt that I've got my hands on, along with trying to do some things with Idaho Seven to check that whole survivables theory out, you know, and actually play around with that and see what we can get. And otherwise, you know, just otherwise straightforward, you know, just the root shoot pale and a bunch of Idaho Seven. Wow, cool! I haven't worked with that for quite a while. Well, and I th- but again, the, the reason why I'm looking at it is, remember, we had Scott Janish on the show, and we had Mike Brennan. They were both talking about some of the stuff with the new hop chemistry that people are finding. And Scott's whole thing recently has been all about that work that he's been doing with YCH about um, about survivable compounds. And Idaho 7, as it turns out, is one of the ones that has, like, a ton of them. So I just thought it would be fun to play with and, and see what sort of characters I could get. Yeah man I'm I'm interested to hear uh, what you find out. Absolutely. And what about you?
0: Uh let me see here. I just got done uh kegging a batch of my West Coast Mall Triple, uh modeled on West Mall Triple. This one is kind of interesting because uh we've been beta testing some uh, fermentation temperature control equipment and um mine had a little glitch in it. And after about three days, the temperature went up to either 77 or 90.7, depending on which recording of it I look at, um, and stayed there for about a day and a half before I managed to get it back down. Uh, And it turns out that the beer really doesn't suck. Uh, You know, generally you tell people, well, if you get uh, high temps early in fermentation, you're going to have a lot of problem with the beer. It did turn out a little bit fruitier, a little bit more banana, and uh, some fusils that I don't normally get in it. But it is not by any means ruined. I simply have to make sure I don't drink too much of it, and it's delicious enough that that's difficult to do. Um, and uh, just the other day, I uh, brewed 12 gallons of my basic West Coast IPA recipe, uh, a lot of pale malt, uh, some Crystal Forty. Uh, I put some Michigan Chinooks into it. Uh, I forget the other hops. Uh, it's fermenting as two six-gallon batches, and I will dry hop each one of those differently. I know that one of them is going to be getting a, a heavy dose of talus because uh, I've decided that uh, I, I like those a lot better than I thought I did at first, and Paula really likes them. And, you know,
1: She's the IPA goddess in the house. Uh, well, I'm trying to remember. Talus. Uh, I mean, is the new one that they released from the. Yeah, or the or did HBC they name?
0: 692, I think it was. and that was.
1: I'm blanking on the characters because I, I remember there was. That that's, was very
0: that's that's odd. the one that's got like cedar and coconut that's and right. tropical fruits. Uh, it's it's very very nice, and I think the other one I'm going to go a little bit more old school on. I have some. Uh, Cascade and centennial cryo hops around, so I think that's going into the other batch, and uh, maybe maybe some more of the Michigan chinook in there to dry hop that too to get a little pineapple to balance out uh, all the other uh, fruit flavors from uh,
1: from the cascade and centennial you know using those cryo hops those uh, older uh, variety uh, style cryo hops, maybe you should call it you know frozen caveman i p a frozen caveman okay if I'll do that just for you. Thank you. All right. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and of course, this is a good time of year to, to brew because at least where I'm at, you know, the temperatures are in the 60s. So it's kind of nice to be able to stand out outside all day without dying. Uh, of course, I don't know about you crazy people who live places where it actually gets cold. Uh, <laughs> but so I'm trying to I'm trying to get in as many brews as I can before uh, Mother Nature decides to return the sun to us. Uh, and one other thing I did try recently, I wanted to t- tell people about that I thought was really cool was I had a happy hour session not too long ago with Levy Freed from uh, Long Beach Beer Lab. And Levy's been on the podcast a couple of times, right? You remember last time he was talking about all the experiments he was doing with Quake. Well, he put together a very, very thoughtful four-pack that did different things that he was showing around the brewery. Like, he made a, a sort of a, a blended seltzer product that he calls Fruz. And what was cool about it was, yeah, sure, he made a, a seltzer base and he made it with Quike, whatever, but it was actually blended half and half with a oak barrel aged blueberry Flanders red, and that was where he was getting the fruit flavor for his seltzer from. So it's actually a seltzer slash beer split, and it was very nice to see. But the one that actually really impressed me the most was he has a, a Saison de Madre, and it's a saison farmhouse ale type thing that he's making. Not a, not a terribly strong one, like a six five, right? So right in that kind of classical saison range. But what's unique about it is the culture that he's using to ferment it is a culture that's been isolated from his wife's his wife Harmony's sourdough starter. So remember, Long Beach Beer Lab is both a brewery and a bakery. And so Harmony has a sourdough starter. He sent part of that starter to bootleg biology over there in Nashville. And they isolated out a couple of cultures from there. And then he used one of these cultures to make the Saison de Madre. And it was spectacular. I mean, not a classical Saison in the sense of like, you know, all these popping phenols and and whatnot. But it carried across a little bit of that dough flavor. And then had the dryness that you expect from a Saison along with a low level of those phenols. So it was just a very different and very kind of cool thing. And since everybody's out there doing sourdoughs these days, who knows? Maybe you've got something lurking in one of your sourdough starters that would make a great beer. Hey,
0: funny you should mention that. I just uh, ordered a sourdough culture from a place called uh, Cultures for Health, and I'm propping it up right now. So, But I don't think I'm going to be doing that because... The difference with Levi's is that he had somebody actually isolate uh, something from it. Uh, I I see people all the time online talking about, uh, you know, what would happen if I just threw my sourdough starter into some beer? (laughs) You know, it's kind of like, God only knows. (laughs) Maybe you'd like it, maybe you wouldn't. Uh, At least with what he's doing, uh, it sounds like he's aiming for a decent chance at uh, having it work for him.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then also – We've coached people in the past about how to make, you know, wild, wild captures that you do, preferably in like a fruit orchard or near fruit trees, to get some sort of a wild, funky thing going. But yeah, this this was just very cool because he ended up making a, a sort of a clean culture out of his wife's sourdough starter. Also, by the way, don't forget, if you are in Long Beach, swing by the brewery, and, and if you leave that place without a pastry or or a bread loaf, you're dumb. <laughs>
0: Yeah, man, Uh, someday I hope to get there, so
1: uh, we'll see how things go. There you go. And one last topic that I wanted to talk about here in the brewery, because I saw this actually in a professional brewing forum, and it made me laugh to see it, because of course we all do. We all have a piece of equipment, a piece of something in our brewery that we just don't like, right? It's something that's painful to us, and I had to stop, and I had to think about it for a while. You know what the least favorite piece of equipment is in my brewery? What's that? My big dang utility sink. And it's not even the utility sink. The sink part is fine. The thing I don't like is the faucet attached to it. Half the time I turn on the cold water, it trickles out and stops. (laughs) I hate the damn thing. Is that the faucet's fault? Yes, it's the faucet's fault. Um, I, no, you know, I know I have to, I have to go take the valve apart and repack it and do all that sort of good stuff with it. And I just, you, why don't why you just go order a new faucet and just put the whole thing on? Well, because the, this sink is a very odd sink. It is not a standard <laughs> fit faucet. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I, trust me. One of the joys of living in a house from 1925 is that you, uh, you discover a lot of strange ball things that are no longer standard and easily replaceable. Yeah,
0: believe me, my house is from 1935. I know exactly what you're talking about. I would have to say that my least favorite piece of equipment that I still haven't haven't gotten rid of yet are my carboys. Uh, I still I still have maybe like 8 or 10 of them hanging around and I'm never going to be using those suckers again. Uh, I hate them. I'm afraid of them. Uh people say, "Oh, you just have to be careful." No, I'm sorry. That's just not the case. Uh, I've broken three of them while I was being careful and mindful and really paying attention to what I was doing. I hate carboys. They ain't gonna get used again.
1: And that's fair. I mean, I Yeah, I'm. I gave away almost all my carboys last year. I have like three, I think, and I just use those for anything that needs long-term aging that I don't want to have in a keg. Yeah, and even yeah. then,
0: I use a keg for long term aging. I tried to give my carboys away to a guy in the club, and he wouldn't take them.
1: Well, see, that. Just keep posting it out to the club forum. Somebody will take them away, just to shut you up.
0: <laughs> yeah, or there'll be a new brewer who doesn't know how dangerous they are, and he'll take them, or something like that, huh?
1: There you go. So that actually leads us to the question to ask to all y'all: Send us an email at podcast at Experimental Brew. What is your least favorite piece of your brewery equipment? I mean, you're not going to have like the what the professionals talk about, like their keg washers are awful. But you have something. Let us know. Yeah, really. Uh, let us know what your least favorite piece of equipment
0: is. And uh, maybe we can hook you up with somebody else and you can trade least favorites. So at least you'll have something different to be your least favorite. <laughs> yes. Let's make everybody equally miserable. <laughs> or newly miserable yeah that 's right man i I' gotten over having this stuff that I hated, and now i 've got something new to hate <sighs> okay, enough of that stuff let 's get out of here and uh, go do some q and a and wrap this baby up. shall we absolutely, okay, please stick around we 'll be back in just a few minutes. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family farms to the world's finest brewers. With their new online store, YCH products are now available wherever brewers choose to shop. Browse the aisles of your local homebrew store or buy direct from YCH at shop.yakimachief.com. Also, experience the new YCH Mobile Solutions app. A free, sustainable alternative to the popular Hop Variety Handbook with information on more than 120 hop varieties to help you make the best beer possible. Available now in the Apple Store or at Google Play. Welcome back, everybody. We are at the wrap-up portion of the show, and we're going to start off with some questions and some answers. Uh, we're not going to vouch for the quality
1: of either one,
0: uh, but uh, you know, we got a bunch of them, so sit back and
1: relax. Well, hey, look, at the very least, I'll vouch for the quality of the questions. Okay. <laughs> And our first question comes from Ken from Kentucky. He actually asked two questions here. One about yeast. He says, in one of the podcasts, I think Denny saves yeast in a sealed plastic container. That's what I do sometimes. I think he uses one to two tablespoons of the yeast to make a, S- a SNS starter, shaking that stirred. Is this correct? Maybe you can explain your process or refer to me to the podcast that talks about this. Yeah, that's, that's basically the answer right there,
0: Ken. Um, I know that, uh, you could, uh, Say, oh, that's not very exact, but that's the kind of brewer I am. Um And I only do that if the uh, slurry has been around, say, you know, a month or two. If it's uh, much less than that, I try and pitch, oh, I think, you know – if I was to measure, it'd be like maybe around 150 mils of uh, slurry, fresh slurry into a batch. And like I said, if it gets old, I'll
1: take a tablespoon or two and make a, a one-quart shaken, not stirred starter with it. There you go. And his uh, second question was about oxidation. He says, the latest obsession in homebrewing appears to be the oxidation of beer. Oh, oxidation. don't get me started. Hmm. Well, and some people got it right. Some people don't. And some people take it to very weird places. Uh Oxidation can be an issue and is well documented. I keg my beer and it is usually gone with one to two months. Then I can brew more beer to keep my keezer full. I use a closed gravity transfer from a plastic PET fermenter through the keg dip tube to reduce splashing and purge the keg with CO2 and then chill in my keezer. I usually don't cold crash beer in the fermenter as I keg it when fermentation is finished. However, when I have cold crashed, I use the Plato pressure drop equalizing valve V2. And that is a mouthful. I was wondering if you had heard of it and have an opinion about it at all. And then he provides a link to the product. Um, look, well, and I can tell you, I have seen it. It's, it's interesting. It is <laughs> my first thought when I saw it was, Oh, that's cute. Somebody used a 3D printer to make a, a brewing product. And if you haven't seen it, it's essentially a, it's a, a an adapter that kind of fits your airlock in to your to your uh, to your carboy your fermenter whatever it is and then has sort of a pressure relief valve or, or a negative relief valve in there so if the pressure drops instead of sucking back through the, the airlock it actually just kind of opens up this one little uh, valve area and equalizes everything going on I haven't played with it and I don't think you have either Denny, have you No I haven't I'm just looking at
0: it here right now you know for ten bucks uh, it might be worth Check it out, but, you know, I'm not sure it's something I really need.
1: Yeah, and and of course, they they want to sell it to you along with their very fancy um, gravity tracking or fermentation tracking, I should say, uh, uh, airlock. They're both kind of cool, but at the same time, I don't think they're really necessary. I do think of all the things, that pressure drop equalizing valve V2 is probably the most practical thing they have. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Uh you know, and I I won't make any comments about the products. Uh, it looks like it for 10 bucks it could be an interesting thing to try, but uh I'm pretty happy with the methods I use and the results I get, so I'm not in a huge hurry to try it.
1: Yeah, uh, for me whenever I'm dealing with like the cold crashing phenomenon, I'm putting some CO2 on there to be able to deal with things. So, like, and that's if I'm in a keg or if I'm in, in in the conical. If you are in a carboy, you could always just transfer to a keg and then use that to do the cold crash.
0: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm like you. I just uh, keep a little bit of CO2 pressure on the fermenter uh, when I'm cold crashing, and no problem for me. Uh, now I'm, I'm sure that not everybody has the same fermentation setup I do and doesn't have that option. So if this looks like something that might be worth it to you, give it a shot.
1: There you go. And then our second question for today comes from Todd Pfizer. said, I just listened to your episodes 94 and 86 regarding water chemistry, and I have a question regarding treatment for calcium hypochlorite. And so he said, this is my first step to find out what's in my water. I reached out to my local water authority. They were prompt and cooperative and provided a whole list of information. And by the way, you too can do that. Your water people will probably be happy to answer you. Just be aware that, that some water people will have
0: the information you actually need for brewing, and some will have it so generalized that you really can't get any good out of it.
1: Right. And so Todd said he followed up with an email asking if they use chlorine or chloramine, and they responded with, no chloramines. We use calcium hypochlorite tablets at two of the wells to provide chlorination for the Rio Verde distribution system. Um, I don't recall mentioning, I don't recall hearing mention of calcium hypochlorite in the podcast. My question is, will the Campton tablets you mentioned to treat chloramine also work for calcium hypochlorite, or is there a different solution that you recommend? And I went and, hit, and I emailed Martin just to double check myself on this, and then the second he responded, I went, oh yeah, duh, dummy. Guess what calcium hypochlorite is? It's bleach. We all yeah. know that, except for yeah. you maybe. Well, no, I was just middle of the night and I was fog headed. Um, so yeah, calcium hyperchlorine is just basically the, um, just the, the form of bleaching material that they use, right? And so you put it into the water. Guess what? It releases chlorine. So yeah, you've got chlorine in your water. Now, how do you remove that? Chlorine is easy to remove. You can let it sit overnight. You could carbon filter it, but remember you got to do it at the right speed or you can boil it or you can just hit it with Campton. All those methodologies will work on chlorine. Easy peasy. Yep. And then uh, he also continues on. He says, the previous owner of our house had a whole house water treatment system installed, uh, a, a system called an H2O Concepts 2000. And it says that the literature left by the previous owner claims that the system, and excuse me while I go into marketing speak here, <clears throat> puts an end to hard water problems while retaining the good minerals by using electronic impulses to decrystallize the hard water minerals, calcium bicarbonate, and magnesium bicarbonate. The whole house mixed-media filtration system removes chlorine and other chemical contaminants and heavy metals from all water. Uh, The filtration system consists of granulated activated carbon, kinetic degradation fluxion, a quartz bed, and electronic technologies, which uses electronic impulses to decrystallize the hard water minerals. Not sure I would have had this system installed, but it's what I have to work with. What are your thoughts on this type of system? And uh, if you order today, we'll send you a second one for only the shipping. Yeah. So if you can't tell just by the, the smart assy voice I just used to read that, uh that is a whole lot of marketing hand wavium. Uh particularly when you get into the idea of the uh, like the way that it breathlessly describes electronic impulses. Um I mean, look, the good thing is, at the very least, it doesn't sound like it's doing like the old sodium ion exchange thing, uh, for water softening, which is a huge problem if you're a brewer. So, to me, fine. <laughs> I'm not sure how much I buy, like, by, like, just the marketing speak. And of course, I've never used this unit. So, um, have Ward Labs check your water. And since you have the, the house system in there, do it both before and after. Uh, that way you can tell if you do bypass, because most, uh, most of the hard water systems I've seen have a bypass. Uh, if you use the water from the bypass, you'll know what you get. If you use the water post, you'll be able to see what you get. And, yeah, just make sure there's no, like, uh, actual ion exchange in there where it's dropping a ton of sodium. What do you think?
0: Uh, yeah, uh, I would just kind of assume it's not doing anything. Get your water tested and move on from there.
1: Exactly. All right. Our third question comes from Nicola McKelly from Mountain Vernon. Nicola writes in saying, I am looking up water adjustments to make my saisons better. Everything I read gives you info on hoppy or malty side. In the case of saisons, aren't you leaning towards yeast expression? How should I adjust my tap water? Nicola provided a table of different uh, compounds. But my, my real suggestion is two things. Yeah, you're right. You're going for a yeast expression, but at the same time, you want to generally keep the malt out of the way. Right. So in that case, I tend to go a little more sulfate with a Saison or I would usually I don't bother to adjust my water for my Saisons because my water is pretty good for that. But you want a little more sulfate in my mind because you want to decrease the, the, the malt expression just so you get more of that, that that yeast phenol and ester expression. Uh, Having said that, really the, the thing to do is go and use the color and flavor profiles. And for me, it's usually dry bitter. Yeah, that's exactly what I was gonna think too, man. Uh and I I definitely agree you want the
0: sulfate uh, a little bit higher for a Saison. Uh you don't you don't want a sweet, malty Saison, right? No. Well there are some
1: people who do, but those people are wrong. <laughs> but they shouldn't. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, that that's my quick that's my quick and dirty answer um to making your water for Saison. So, our final question for the day comes from Alan H, who texted us at 626-765-1AL. That's 1253. And he left us a text message saying, Hey, Denny and Drew, I was just listening to episode 122 and I thought I heard Drew mention Krampus Claws. At first, I was like, No. And then he started talking about it and I'm like, Yes. I just brewed that beer a few weeks ago. It's stuck though. I'm going to pitch some new yeast and aerate tonight or in the morning. Raise the temperature and give a few swirls already. Just thought it was interesting. It hit 11:40 on it and man, have better plans for next year. Cheers. 11:40. <laughs> holy crap. Oh yeah, I mean look, if you're if you're going to make a Sammy Claws clone whether it's uh, Krampus Claws or like my my version which is Falcon's Claws, uh yeah, 11:40 is the starting gravity. And that's uh the starting gravity on a logger. That thing is a beast. <laughs> and yeah. painful. No and so kidding. I will just reiterate to everybody, my my usual rules on this one is if you're going to go make a Falcon's Claws beer, you need to make a yeast cake. There is no two yeah. ways about it. Yeah. No, don't try just pitching a starter. Let, let a previous batch be your starter. Yeah. So I will, like in the past when I've gone and made 10 gallons of Falcon's Claws, I've done 10 gallons of, say, like Schwartz beer ahead of time and <laughs> used the right. yeast cake out of that. Yeah, yeah. So, But yes, Alan, good luck. Uh, the first couple times I did a Sammy Claus type clone, uh, it it took a while. So fortunately, the beer's supposed to be an year old when you have it, so you got time. <laughs> That's right. Okay, moving on to the quick tip, and I guess I'll take
0: this one today. And this is uh, kind of spurred on by a lot of the comments I see on Facebook when somebody is getting into water treatment they will talk about what their water pH is and how do they adjust it correctly. Well, the answer is you don't adjust your water pH. You adjust your mash pH. Uh, the grains will do a lot to change the pH, to uh, pull it down. So if you start off by just adjusting your water pH you have nowhere to go for what the grains are going to do. So that's why we like using something like, uh, like brewing water. There's a lot of other water programs out there. Start by looking at the mineral profile of the water that you have. Take into account what the grain will do to it and adjust pH from there. And remember, uh water treatment is a two-step process. You get your minerals in there for flavor, see what they're doing, and then you adjust pH from that. And uh, on the side, I'll just say, don't try and adjust pH with gypsum. Sure, it pulls the pH down, but by the time you get enough gypsum in there to make a real change in the pH, you're going to have a pretty funky taste in beer.
1: <laughs> well, there you go. And yeah, that that was inspired by some of the conversations I saw you having online earlier this week.
0: Yeah, I I thought that maybe that's where it came from because
1: that has come up a lot this week. So, and you have something other for us, huh? Yeah, I got two something others for you. One of which is a brand new YA novel. Uh, and I I know you're you're thinking why is Drew reading a YA novel? Well, it turns out there's actually a lot of really good stuff made in the YA world, particularly in science fiction and fantasy. And this one's really cool and actually ties in the fact like we were talking about uh, African beer earlier in the in the library. It's a book called Ray Bearer uh, by Jordan Foucault. It's the first book in the a series that she's calling the Ray Bearer series. So, hey, look, it bears the title. You won't get very confused. It is fun. It is interesting. It is a light and frothy read. But what's very cool about it is it all takes place in this. Magical fantasy world that is also very clearly heavily inspired by Africa. And, you know, so there are a tribe of people who live up in the north who are Scottish in a way, but everything else in this world is all very African based. And it's about a girl who is born to essentially get her mother's revenge uh, by learning to fall in love and commit herself to the next king of this kingdom of this empire. And when she commits herself to him, kill him. And it's all about the conflict that this girl feels. The fact that she feels unloved in her early life because her mother just treats her as a weapon. It doesn't really mother her. And she's raised in this isolated way. It's just a very fascinating and cool world with a different take on magic and how things are supposed to work and like a deal with the dead and the kingdom of the dead and all this other it's just fun, and it's very different. And, you know, if you've been reading a lot of sort of say Tolkien inspired fantasy, which a good portion of American fantasy is, then it's a very nice change of pace. So again, that is Ray Bearer by Jordan and Foucault. And I uh, but at the same time, I also say that the other something other that I'm going to throw at you is to give yourself permission to go and enjoy something comfortable and familiar. And so to the point about Tolkien based fantasy, I've reread and rewatched Lord of the Rings. God knows how many times in my life. But I just realized the other day that I don't think I've read The Hobbit since I was in sixth grade. And so I decided, what the hell? Go back and start reading The Hobbit again. And no, I'm not watching The Hobbit movies. I The one I saw was terrible. So Oh, man, I liked them. Ah, uh, my problem with them was that they tried to they tried to stretch a very simple book across three movies. Mm.
0: Well, you need to you need to go watch the whole thing again. I thought it was uh, extremely well done and covered things well, but you know, to to each their own. Uh,
1: you know, yep. you don't have to like it. Yep. You know, but uh, but again, go and give yourself some permission. I forgot how fun the uh, the Hobbit is. At least uh, the book. So. Yeah. Really? Okay, I guess that's about it, huh? I think
0: so. Let's get out of here. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we're at expbrewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the Slack homebrewing channel and the homebrewing subreddit. You can find me on the AHA discussion forum, on the brew house, the beer garden, on Facebook, uh, and any number of beer forums out there. I pop in every once in a while. Just don't forget that if you want to ask us a question, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And you can always leave us a voicemail or shoot us a text at 626-765-1AL. That's 626 626-765- 765 One, two, five, three. So, until next time, remember to always brew experimentally.
1: Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. (laughs)